kind words, that kind gift. And Laura and I and, and our family, we just appreciate this church so much. And I tell people, when people ask about our church or visit a church, I say that we are a down-to-earth church. Everybody here is just real. And everybody here is very kind. Um, we appreciate the thoughts and the gifts. And we're just glad to be here. I don't want to go too far into this, but, you know, when you're going through seminary, and the idea, just because we're in America, is kind of like you get a church, and then you move to a bigger church, and then you move to a bigger church when you get to be a better preacher, and then you get go around and speak all over at different places, and you hold seminars, and people come and pay money. And I think, who wants that? <laughs> this is what we really like. We like, you know, making friends and seeing people get married and have children and them growing up. And just, just the kindness and love that's shown like we have here. So we appreciate you. Let's go ahead and pray then. Father, we thank you for this time in your word and pray that uh, you would bless our time and open our eyes to the things we need to know and bring us closer to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is my... Uh, I don't see the... I call it a clicker. The remote. I guess somebody rearranged the church or something. I don't know. <clears throat> well, let me get started here. And uh, if it turns up... And I'll just point or something. <clears throat> okay, thank you. You know, I imagine that many of us here, if maybe not all of us, have at one time or another looked for a church to call our church home. You know, maybe visited different churches. And you know, most people, when they talk about looking for a church, they'll say something like, well, yeah, we're looking for a good church. And, of course, that makes perfect sense. That's what you want, a good church to belong to, to uh, go and fellowship in, to learn from, to serve. <clears throat> I kind of like to think of it in terms of a healthy church. I think part of the reason I, I like the word healthy church is because the last kind of a church I want to be a part of is a sick church. I want to be a part of a healthy church. So what makes a healthy church? You know, we could probably start naming different aspects of church that we think would help a church become a healthy church or be a healthy church. <clears throat> and if we were to name these things, maybe our lists would differ a little bit as to what are the most important things and what order they belong in and that sort of thing. But here's what I think is the most important element of a healthy church. I think it's the people. When you think of the church, the church really is the people, and the people make up the whole tenor of the church. 
And so I think it's spiritually healthy Christians. And here's what I think makes up a good church. What kind of people? Kind, caring, helpful, generous, forgiving, mature, faithful. And that's just a list I just thought of in just several seconds of what kind of people make up a good church. And then on the flip side of that, if you have kind of a sick church, unhealthy church, here's what I think of. Self-centered, I mean the kind of people, insensitive, insecure, controlling, rude, proud. You could put legalistic in there. You could put other things. Now, personally, and this kind of goes along with what I was saying before, what I hadn't planned on saying, but I think this church is filled with good, caring people. And that's what I really like about this church is because I think the people here, you people, are very quality Christians. And to me, that makes a healthy church. And you might even say a good church. But you know, our, ta- our passage today warns us against allowing our church to become an unhealthy church. And that threat can be very real. A church can turn into a very unhealthy church because so many churches have done that. And the Apostle Paul warns against it in the Bible. Many churches have gone from healthy to unhealthy over the years. Whole denominations have gone from healthy to unhealthy. After decades of being healthy denominations, they've just slowly deteriorated into unhealthy denominations denying the truth. Because the forces of darkness are out to get healthy churches and healthy denominations and healthy Christians. The forces of darkness are out to try to take us down that wrong road. And the great thing is that not only does our passage warn us about or warn us against allowing our church to become unhealthy, it tells us how to prevent it this morning. So we're going to finish the New Testament epistle of Titus this morning, Paul's letter to Titus. And what I'd like to start with is just read through the first eight verses of Titus, chapter 3, in order to get our context and then take us into those last verses of the book. So the Apostle Paul says to Titus, as he is left in Crete to build up the churches and to uh, have elders, appoint elders to run them or to, to lead them, he says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Those are their civil authorities. To be obedient. To be ready to do whatever is good. To slander no one. To be peaceable and considerate. And always to be gentle toward everyone. Now, those are kind of like the things we were talking about as we listed those. At one time, he says, here's why we should be gentle to everyone, even people outside the church, even unbelievers. He says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient. And, you know, he's talking about people that have come over from paganism. People that have grown up in the church can't relate to this as much. But <clears throat> in, in our hearts, we all are this if we don't have Christ. 
At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Okay. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, here's the big difference. It's that from them to us, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, not because we deserved it by being so good, but because of his mercy. And mercy is like having pity on someone who needs help. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that... Having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. One more. This is a trustworthy saying. He's talking about what he just said, having, becoming heirs of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. <clears throat> so Paul wants Titus to remind the Christians on Crete that they are new creatures, now new creatures in Jesus Christ. We all have our problems some mornings, don't we? <laughs> We just know how to hide it better, I think. He wants them to know that they are now new creatures in Jesus Christ. They have come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And becoming one with Jesus Christ, that's what it is. It's a union between us, our spirits, and Christ. And it should change our whole lives. It should change the whole, well, the way that we look at the whole world and, and just everything we do. And so now, he says... They live for him, not just for themselves. Now they are to leave behind the, the lives where they were enslaved to sin and live as heirs to eternal life, that hope of eternal life that just, just stands out before them, that living hope that dwells inside them, that should transform us into, from, you know, those who are selfish into the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And Paul says, those who have placed their trust in God should be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. If we placed our trust in Christ, we should now be devoted on that pathway, devote ourselves to that pathway of doing what is good, helping others in need, Raising a godly family. Living to please God and not ourselves. And now we come to Paul's warning to the church. We know that he has already been talking to them about false teachers in his letter. He's talked to them about the troubles that they cause. And he said they must be silenced, these false teachers, because they start hurting the church and they disrupt whole families, whole households. And so here at the end of this letter, he tells them how they can handle these people who could wreck a church if they're not stopped. 
So here he's, here's what he's telling Titus, and Titus is to pass this on to the leaders. He said, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, the Jewish law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. Okay, one more. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Avoid foolish controversies. Yeah, let's go one more. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, arguments, and quarrels about the law. He calls these foolish controversies. Not because the law is foolish, right? He's talking about those who bring these things up. They're walking into foolishness. He shows that these matters that they're bringing up aren't even worth arguing about. And it shows that these people who are bringing up these matters are not sincere. If they were sincere, they'd be worth talking about. It seems they have some ulterior motive. Perhaps they want to promote some belief or some doctrine or some practice that is strange or contrary to the Christian belief. So they try the back door. They try by taking out a passage of scripture and using it to their own means. And a lot of times they would take passages that really had no content to them, maybe a list of genealogies, and they might say, <clears throat> I mean, I'm just making this up, but I'm, I imagine saying something like this. You see this third descendant of this third descendant of this third descendant? Well, you take those numbers three, and then that will, and then they go into this, all this stuff about what that means if you know the, the value of numbers. It's that sort of thing that these people would do, and they would try to take people off on an, another pathway away from the truth of the gospel, away from the truth of the Bible or the commands, and take them down their own road. So listen to what Paul tells Timothy when he was working with people in Ephesus and facing the same problem. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, <clears throat> middle of verse 3 through verse 7. He says to Timothy, Command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. He's talking about people coming into the church. Or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command, the command he just gave them, the goal of my command to you is love. Now here it is. You have these false teachers coming in, and they have ulterior motives. <clears throat> so Paul says, here's the difference. The goal of Paul's command ends up in love, true love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. And that's the difference. A pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Okay. Some have departed from these 
and have turned to meaningless talk because they have an ulterior motive. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So we aren't talking about someone having an honest question about the Christian faith or the Bible. We aren't even talking about someone in the church having an honest uh, doubt about the gospel or the Bible. You know, that happens. But we're talking about something more devious, more sinister. You know, somebody without a pure heart. Someone trying to stir things up, perhaps. Someone who maybe with an axe to grind. Maybe somebody going after somebody else. Could be someone trying to gain a following to themselves. In verse 10, uh, Paul says, that person is divisive. Whatever that person is doing, it's causing divisions in the church. And that's the big, that's the big issue. We don't want a church divided and fighting against itself. And it could be someone taking an obscure passage of scripture and trying to use that to form their own doctrine. I don't know if you've heard that before from people. Sometimes people will take a passage of scripture and they'll go off from that into meanings that you never even find in the Bible at all or anything close to it. And they just kind of make it up as they go. And people believe it and they follow it. They may be working on gaining a following for themselves and not for Christ. Forming their own doctrine. I mean, you know, we've seen, probably many of you were aware of David Koresh back some years ago. Down in Waco, Texas. And he had a way of capturing people. He would talk to them and act like he really cared for them. And then he took people down to that, that place near Waco... <clears throat> that commune, and he married all the women, and he would let them be legally married to another person in the commune, but he would, he would be their husband, and he would uh, have children with those women. And, and he, all the time, he was acting like he was caring for them. And it was all deceit. It was all, I guess, narcissistic self-centeredness. And in Crete, some were engaging in that kind of behavior, maybe not that extreme, but that kind of behavior. And Paul called it wanting dishonest gain. But look how we can distinguish between someone with honest motives and selfish motives. Look at verses 5 and 6 again in 1 Timothy. He says, the goal of this command, his command, is love. That's the end goal. It should end up in people loving one another. Which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And six, some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. So really, it all comes down to our motives, doesn't it? It all comes down, are we really trying to please Christ Are we really coming from a pure heart? Are we really trying to help people? And if we do that, then we have pure motives and a good conscience. And Paul says that's the end of the law of love. 
That's where it's supposed to lead us eventually and ultimately is to love and have a pure conscience and really do things for Christ. You know, sometimes someone may have an honest concern or doubt or disagreement and they may have some doctrinal question or practice or something where they came from in their background and there's nothing wrong with that if they, if they get there honestly in their own minds. Uh, years ago, we had a, a faithful man in our church. <clears throat> and he asked if he could talk to the elder board. And we knew that he had this doctrinal difference from the church. And he knew what we, we believed as a church. Well, uh, he asked if he could meet with the elder board, but Ron... Ginheimer and I met with him. I'm not sure how much you remember this, Ron. <laughs> but so he showed up with this notebook of notes and he started lecturing us for like an hour on this doctrine that he believed in and believed that we should take as a church. He basically believed that you know, you would not be able to have your sins forgiven unless you were water baptized. And we believe that water baptism is, is something very good. It's a sign to others of what's going on inside of us. But we didn't, don't believe that the water baptism is a part of what saves you. So <clears throat> we sat down and he lectured us for about an hour, and we just sat there and listened to him, asking maybe a few questions. He wanted to meet again. We meet, met the next week. He did the same thing. He lectured us for an hour. Then I told him at that point, I said, okay, we'll meet one more time, but this time we get to talk. Well, we met again. He started lecturing. We said, no, no. <laughs> I guess he could have gone on for a third hour. But we said, no, we gave you two hours of uninterrupted teaching time. Now it's our turn. And so I had a full page of notes that I had written down about these verses, and Ron had some notes. And we just talked to him, and ours just took like 10 minutes apiece. We gave him those pages, and we, we parted ways there. I mean, he, I mean, he left. He wanted to meet again. We said, no, we've met enough. And then later he said, I've never had anybody address the verses that I've given them on this. And I thought, are you kidding me? Because <laughs> we discussed them with him. We wrote our own thing and told him why we believe the other way. And then he goes, after that, he goes and says, no one's ever let me talk or address this issue with me. I thought, well... Nothing's going to help then. It ended up that uh, he left the church months later, and there was no, no bad feelings or anything like that. But you know, in his case, he wasn't trying to promote his view to the church. He came to the elder board, and we appreciated that. And he saw that we weren't going to go that way, and he left. And so everything remained peaceful, we appreciated the way he handled it, and then we thought that was the way for us to handle it. But, you know, here was the interesting thing about that. 
He, I mean, he was a very nice man, helped people a lot. He was available that held his belief, but he wouldn't go to them. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I guess he didn't like them. But I almost thought, I think he liked what we had, but he just wanted to change us into what he thought. Now, I bring this up because there was potential for division in the church in that situation. He had an honest disagreement that he felt strong about. We gave him his chance to speak. If he would have started working against the church or trying to gain a following for his belief, we would have had to deal with that. But he didn't, and there was no trouble, and there was no division. So I think, you know, two things here in this matter, as Paul's trying to tell the church how to handle these things. So much of it is the person's attitude, his motive, his sincerity of heart. I mean, <clears throat> this man wasn't out to divide the church. We had differences of opinion, but we didn't get into a, a major fight with it. And the thing is that Paul's trying to avoid is things that cause divisions in the church. Things that were, you know, you start picking sides. We don't want to do that. We want to keep everything peaceful according to the doctrines of the Bible and just kindness and love. He's speaking of people in this scripture who do not care about right and wrong. He's speaking of people who are in it for what they can get out of it. They have selfish motives. They may want to gain a following. They may enjoy a lot of praise, you know, when somebody lifts them up. But their actions will only hurt the church and cause divisions. And if that happens, they have to be confronted. They have to be talked to. And sometimes that isn't pleasant for a church. And sometimes people get a little upset that people talk to people. But if it happens, if there's a threat, then, you know, the leaders have to take care of it. And after the steps are taken, the problem isn't solved, then they will have to leave. They're self-condemned. They're their own jury, judge and jury. They stand guilty. And it isn't something we want to let go through the church. Now, we come to the very end of this letter to Titus. And I want you to look with me. <clears throat> well, here it's, let me read this. Here's what you do. Okay, what, what is verse 9 again there? Could you go one more back? Oh, that's, that's way back. Yeah, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and arguments, and quarrels about the law because they are profitable. Okay, let's go to uh, <clears throat> 11 here. He says, you may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. And then 12... He says, then he, go, then he goes back, then he goes to the end of the letter. <clears throat> and he's telling Titus some things he wants him to do as he's ending up his 
time there. He says, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. 13. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. <clears throat> you know, as Paul ends his letter, he gives these final instructions to Titus, and they have to do with helping the ministry and taking the gospel to the people who need it, right? He sends people to relieve Titus. He wants Titus to meet him in Nicopolis, and he decides to spend the winter there. You know, in those days, wherever you were at the beginning of winter, you had to stay there till it was over. He also tells Titus to help Zenos and Apollos on their way to make sure they get what they need in order to advance the gospel. Everything is about carrying out the ministry to reach more people with the gospel, to encourage people in the gospel and in the church, getting the gospel out to people that need to hear it, encouraging, building up, strengthening, helping with problems, delivering supplies, relieving workers, taking communications back and forth. And he says in verse 14, <clears throat> here's what I think is pretty key. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and live, not live unproductive lives. What a closing statement. We must learn to devote ourselves to doing what is good in order to, to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. What I see Paul saying here as he ends his letter is that we need to train our minds take our thoughts captive, as the Bible says, so that we are continually striving to do good. And in this instance, doing good is providing for the urgent needs for those that are helping Paul spread the gospel. Devote ourselves to doing good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Something that is a scary thought for me personally is to stand before the Bema seat of Christ, which is when Christ judges our works, not our salvation, we who are saved and have a place in heaven, we're going to stand before Christ and he's going to judge our works. And I'd hate to have my report card saying, unproductive. Ouch. <laughs> I don't know how to work. Maybe, you know, on some things, unproductive in some areas. Pretty good. Who knows? I remember as a kid asking my mom for something while she'd be doing housework. And she'd say, okay. Several minutes later, I'd, I'd ask her again. <clears throat> She's still doing housework. And she'd say, okay, I'll get to it. Minutes later, I asked her again, and then she would say, you have a one-track mind. 
Don't you ever think of anything else? And, you know, come to think of it, I wasn't a very creative kid. But what if we had more of a one-track mind toward doing good? I had a one-track mind toward doing what I wanted to do, or what I wanted my mom to do. But what if we had a one-track mind toward doing good, enhancing the ministry of the gospel, helping someone in need? Well, that's pretty, he got pretty high on that one. By building a friendship with an unchurched neighbor, checking up on someone facing a difficulty, getting involved in a church ministry that could use some help that not many want to help with, devoting ourselves to doing good in order to provide for urgent needs and so that we won't live an unproductive life. That is our calling, isn't it? Devotion to good. Don't be unproductive. And I know, <clears throat> excuse me, I know that this, that is what this church is about. And again, I, I, I shudder to think of receiving the mark of unproductive at the Bema seat. So let's continue on toward the prize of the high calling. Let's continue to devote ourselves to doing good. And what is good to provide for urgent needs and the spread of the gospel? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for so much practical wisdom in the Bible and for putting it into into stories or into uh, letters, real-life circumstances, so we can relate to it so much easier, instead of just a list of commands. So, Lord, we just thank you for what you've given us, how you've preserved it through the ages, how much it can teach us, and for the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand it and, and presses it upon our hearts. Help us to have those sincere hearts pure consciences, and just ones who want to be productive for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.